All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton, and we are standing in the confessional corner, having made it to Article 8 of the Formula of Concord. This week, we'll look at it from the epitome. Looking at, for the next few weeks, the person of Christ and what it is that we believe, teach, confess about Jesus. Now, you would think, okay, this should be fairly early on, you know, much like the Augsburg Confession, where it's the first three articles there talk about who Jesus is, who God is, what the whole point is. But here it is the rhetorical structure of the whole thing, where we're coming off of the Holy Supper of our Lord in Article 7. So now we do need to talk about the person of Jesus here in Article 8. So we are on page 491 of the Concordia, the Lutheran Confessions, the Reader's a Guide to the Book of Concord. From the controversy about the Holy Supper, a disagreement has arisen between the pure theologians of the Augsburg Confession and the Calvinists. The Calvinists have also confused some other theologians about the person of Christ and the two natures in Christ and their properties. So, as I said, this is directly drawing from Article 7 and the talk about the Holy Supper and the Sacramentarians and Calvinists there. So now that we have that situated, we need to talk about what it is actually about Jesus here. So what is the problem here? We keep going on in the chief questions in this controversy, multiple questions here. The chief question, however, has been this. Because of the personal union, do the divine and human natures and also their properties really have communion with each other? In other words, indeed, in truth, do the divine and human natures commune with each other in the person of Christ? And how far does this communion extend? The sacramentarians have asserted that the divine and human natures in Christ are personally united in such a way that neither one has real communion. This means, indeed, in truth, that they do not share with the other nature what is unique to either nature. They share nothing more than the name alone. For they plainly say the personal union does nothing more than make the names common. In other words, God is called man, and man is called God. Yet this happens in such a way that the divine has no real communion, that is, indeed, in truth, with humanity. And humanity has nothing in common with divinity, its majesty, and properties. Dr. Luther and those who agreed with him have contended against the sacramentarians for the contrary teaching. So the question here is, yes, okay, Jesus is God and man. Everybody agrees with that in this controversy. But the problem is, how do they relate to one another? Is there an issue between the divine and the human? Or is there cohesion where there is the, where you have one, you have the other? And this is truly the issue that we had in the seventh article with the sacramentarians. Is if you have God and man together, you have the divine nature in a human body, then that human body can't be in heaven and on the altar at the same time. And it can't be in multiple places that are having communion at the same time either. So obviously, there can be no real communion between the divine and human natures. You have one or the other. And so Luther and the Orthodox confessors of the Augsburg Confession have gone the other way. No, you have both of them all the time, that you cannot have one without the other. So we continue on to talk about the pure teaching 
as the epitome has it. To explain this controversy and settle it according to the guidance and analogy of our Christian faith, our doctrine, faith, and confession is as follows. Number one, the divine and human natures in Christ are personally united. So there are not two Christ, one the Son of God and the other the Son of Man, but one and the same person is the Son of God and the Son of Man, Luke 1.35 and Romans 9.5. Number two, we believe, teach, and confess that the divine and human natures are not mingled into one substance, nor is one changed into the other. Each keeps its own essential properties, which cannot ever become the properties of the other nature. So it is not that you have some Conflu you know, confluence of the divine and human, some mixture of it that is now this third thing that is Jesus. No, that's absolutely not. And we'll talk about a couple of the people who had those ideas in the negative statements in a few minutes. Let's keep going with the positives, the true statements. Number three, the properties of the divine nature are these, to be almighty, eternal, infinite, and to be everywhere present according to the property of its nature and its natural essence of itself, to know everything, and so on. These never become the properties of the human nature. Number four, the properties of the human nature are to be a bodily creature, to be flesh and blood, to be finite and physically limited, to suffer, to die, to ascend and descend, to move from one place to another, to suffer hunger, thirst, cold, heat, and the like. These never become the properties of the divine nature. Number five, the two natures are united personally, that is, in one person. Therefore, we believe, teach, and confess that this union is not the kind of joining together in connection that prevents either nature from having anything in common with the other personally, that is, because of the personal union. It is not like when two boards are glued together, where neither gives anything to the other or takes anything away from the other. But here is described the highest communion that God has truly with man, the, from this personal union, the highest and indescribable communion results. There flows everything human that is said and believed about God and everything divine that is said and believed about the man Christ. The ancient teachers of the church explained this union and communion of the two natures by the illustration of iron going with fire and also by the union of body and soul in man. So we have a listing of what are the divine nature's attributes. Then what are the human nature's attributes? No, neither one becomes the property of the other. But we have them joined together in this highest and most indescribable communion between these two, in the divine and the human in Jesus. This is not like, as they say, when two boards are glued together, that you don't have... Um, we'll go with even an oak board and a pine board. You know, when you put those two together, you don't have part of the pine becoming part of the oak and part of the oak becoming the pine. They are two separate things, just happening to be joined together by the glue. The ancient teachers have gone more with the idea of a piece of iron having been taken out of the fire that is glowing with the heat from the fire, that there is still partially there. Or the even better one, and the one that gets closer to it is the fact that human beings are body and soul. There is the fleshly body, but there is also the immaterial soul that is inside of us. We can't measure the soul. We can't see the soul. We can't separate ourselves from the soul because, well, that is the definition of death. But we have in Jesus this 
indescribable union and communion that we cannot get. We just have to accept and believe because Jesus has said that he is both God and man. We move on. Number six, we believe, teach, and confess that God is man and man is God. This could not be true if the divine and human natures had indeed in truth absolutely no communion with each other. For how could the man, the son of Mary, in truth be called or be God, or the son of God, the most high, if his humanity were not personally united with the son of God? How could he have no real communion that is indeed in truth with the most high, but only share God's name? Number seven, so we believe, teach, and confess that Mary conceived and bore not merely a man and no more, but God's true son. Therefore, she is rightly called and truly is the mother of God. Now, here is one of the places where we Lutherans have an issue with the Roman Catholics and the Eastern Orthodox, where they have no problem calling Mary the Theotokos, which, I mean, honestly and truly is translated the bearer of God, but that they can call her the mother of God. Now, they go far afield with it in their veneration of her as the mother of God, as if especially in the Roman Catholic Church, that she is a co-redemptress with Jesus. But what she conceives is God and man in the flesh. There is no question as to when Jesus becomes God, because Jesus has always been God. So yes, as Lutherans, we can truly say and rightfully say that Mary is the mother of God because she is the mother of God the Son. And that could we could go on another 30-minute program just on that, but I want to get through the rest of this article. So we're in paragraph 13, number 8 in the list. We also believe, teach, and confess that it was not a mere man who suffered, died, was buried, descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was raised to God's majesty and almighty power for us. But it is a man whose human nature has such a profound, close, indescribable union and communion with God's Son that it is one person with him. Just as Mary did not give birth to just a man, just a man did not die on the cross for us. Because if it were just a man, that Mary bore, or just a man that died on the cross, we have no assurance of our salvation. Even a perfect life that Jesus had, okay, great. With him being just man, he would be able to save maybe one person, not the world. That only comes because God died on the cross. All right, number nine, God's son truly suffered for us. However, he did so according to the attributes of the human nature, which he received into the unity of his divine person and made his own. He did this so that he might be able to suffer and be our high priest for our reconciliation with God, as it is written in 1 Corinthians 2.8, they crucified the Lord of glory. And Acts 20.28 20, says, with God's blood we have been redeemed. Number 10, we believe, teach, and confess that the Son of Man really is exalted. He is indeed in truth exalted according to his human nature to the right hand of God's almighty majesty and power. For he was received into God when he was conceived of the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb, and his human nature was personally united with the Son of the Highest. So when did this happen? It happened at the very moment of the conception, that announcing by Gabriel to the Virgin Mary that she was going to be the mother of the Son of God. 
Number 11, Christ always had this majesty according to the personal union, yet he abstained from using it in the state of his humiliation. And because of this, he truly increased in all wisdom and favor with God and men. Therefore, he did not always use his majesty, but only when it pleased him. Then after his resurrection, he entirely laid aside the form of a servant, but not the human nature, and was established in the full use, manifestation, and declaration of the divine glory. In this way, he entered into his glory. Philippians 2, 6-11. So now, not just as God, but also as man, he knows all things and can do all things. He is present with all creatures and has under his feet and in his hands everything that is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, as he himself testifies in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. See also John thirteen three. And St. Paul says in Ephesians 4.10, He ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Because he is present, he can exercise his power everywhere. To him, everything is possible and everything is known. So we have here in this one bullet point, both the distinction between divine and human, but also the distinction between the state of humiliation and the state of exaltation. Where yes, during his earthly life, Jesus did not always use his divine power and majesty. He did not always show it. And in that way could grow in stature and in the knowledge and wisdom before God and man. But after his resurrection, yes, it is all out full majesty being shown there. And it's because he laid aside the form of a servant, not because he laid aside the human nature, but because he is showing himself as the Son of God, because that is what we need now, is to understand not only the Son of Man who taught, who lived, who breathed, who died, but also the Son of God who was there along the way, performing the miracles, having that understanding as to why people were asking the questions that they were asking, and so forth that he could go and astound and puzzle the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and everybody else. All of this because he has always been God and man ever since the conception by the Holy Spirit. All right, number 12. Christ may give his true body and blood in the Holy Supper as one who is present, and it is very easy for him to do so. He does not do this according to the mode of or ability of the human nature, but according to the mode and ability of God's right hand. Dr. Luther says this in accordance with our Christian faith as we teach it to children. This presence of Christ in the Holy Supper is not physical or earthly, nor capernitic. Yet it is true and substantial as the words of his testament read, This is, is, is my body, and so on. So Christ may give his true body and blood in the Lord's Supper, anywhere and everywhere it is, because he's God. Not because he's human, but because he's God. We continue on. Our doctrine, faith, and confession about the person of Christ is not divided as it was by Nestorius. He denied the true communion of the properties of both natures in Christ. He also divided the person, as Luther has explained in his book concerning councils. The natures, together with their properties, are not mixed with each other into one essence, as Eutychius erred. The human nature in the person of Christ is not denied or annihilated, nor is either nature changed into the other. Christ is and remains to all eternity God and man in one undivided person. Next to the Holy Trinity, this is the highest mystery upon which our 
Only consolation, life, and salvation depends, as the apostle testifies in 1 Timothy 3.16. So we have Nestorius, who said, no, 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 there were just two Jesuses. There was the Christ, the Son of God, and there was Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of Man. Two different people. Eutychia said, no, it was a blending together, as you would if you put every." If you put both the divine nature and the human nature in a mixer and mixed them together like you would for cake batter. But no, what we believe, teach, and confess is that Christ is and remains to all eternity, God and man in one undivided person. Next to the Trinity being three persons in one essence, this is the highest mystery. This is also what everything depends upon. Because if Jesus is not God and man, our salvation is not there. All right, let's move on into the negative statements. And there's quite a few of them, as we have talked about a little bit. Beginning in paragraph 19, we reject and condemn as contrary to God's word and our simple, pure Christian faith, all the following erroneous articles, if they are taught. So all of these and these bullet points are all things that we teach against. Number one, God and man in Christ are not one person. But the Son of God is one and the Son of Man another, as Nestorius raved. Number two, the divine and human natures have been mingled with each other into one essence, and the human nature has been changed into the deity, as Eutyches fanatically asserted. Number three, Christ is not true, natural, and eternal God, as Arius held and blasphemed. Number four, Christ did not have a true human nature consisting of body and soul, as Marcion imagined. So here, are the, these first four are the four main ones that have been coming up throughout history, that either they're two different people, they're all mixed together, Jesus is not really truly God as much as the Father is, or that Jesus is not really truly man like you and I are. Those are really the four different ways you could fall off this doctrine. And everything else, there's another 16 things, all have some backing to any of these. So let's keep going. Number five, the personal union only makes the names and titles common to both natures. Number six, to say God is man, man is God, is only a phrase and mode of speaking. For divinity, they say, indeed, in truth, has nothing in common with humanity, nor the humanity with the deity. It is nothing but words when it is said, the Son of God died for your, the sins of the world, or the Son of Man has become almighty. Yeah, it's only words. And while we know in 2023 that there is a lot of weight behind some words, but most words have absolutely no weight, that it is just simply people spewing hot air and what they want to do and say, and they have really no meaning or substance behind it. Number eight, the human nature in Christ has become an infinite essence in the same way as the divinity. It is present everywhere in the same way as the divine nature because of this essential power and property communicated to and poured out into the human nature and separated from God. And we have a few more here that go along this same line. The human nature has become equal to and like the divine nature in its substance and essence or in its essential properties. Number 10, Christ's human nature is locally extended to all places of heaven and earth, which should not even be said about the divine nature. Number 11, because of the character of the human nature, it is impossible for Christ to be in more than one place at the same time, much less everywhere with his body. All right, so we've got these. 
coming back to the idea that somehow the humanity has become very much like the divinity. Like when Jesus ascended into heaven, that his entire body took up the universe and that we are all now inside his body, which, I mean, is an odd way and a very pantheistic way of understanding our view of the church being the body of Christ. But, you know, this this becomes more of, well, if God, if Jesus' body can be everywhere, well, that means it's been spread out everywhere, that it has encapsulated everything, so that either his body has expanded to take over the universe, or the universe has contracted to be able to fit inside him. Both of these ideas are completely ludicrous. Then we get to the idea that, okay, if we don't have that, well, human nature can only be in one place at one time, so therefore it cannot be anywhere else. Now we get into some other ideas uh, that, well, Calvin had the idea that Jesus could not be everywhere at once in his human nature. Uh, now we have number 12. Only the mere humanity has suffered for us and redeemed us. And God's Son in the suffering had actually no communion with the humanity, as though it did not concern him. So that Jesus, well, Christ, the Son of God, the Logos, left him. This is the idea behind the Jehovah's Witnesses. This is behind uh, Oneness Pentecostalism, that when Jesus died, Christ left him. And it truly was just the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who died. And we starkly, starkly uh, deny that. Number 13, Christ is present with us on earth in the word, the sacraments, and in all our troubles, only according to his divinity. This presence does not at all apply to his human nature. They also say that after having redeemed us by his suffering and death, Christ has nothing to do with us any longer on earth. This is the idea that Jesus is only here in spirit. That after he died, after he rose from the dead, after he ascended into heaven, he has absolutely nothing to do with us here on earth anymore. This also is kind of the idea of the oneness Pentecostal, where you have in any other form of modalism, where they explain the Trinity as being, well, God works in three different modes. And he's never in more than one mode at the same time. And he never goes back to other modes. So in the beginning, he was the father. You know, throughout the Old Testament, he is the father. And then we get to the Gospels, and here is Jesus, the son. So now he's working this way. And then in the book of Acts, we get the spirit. But he can never go back from being the spirit as he is now to being the son or being the father. He can only be one of them, uh, which is very confusing but also very demeaning of God of saying that there is something that he cannot do or that he has absolutely nothing to do with us anymore. All right, number 14. God's son assumed the human nature. After he laid aside the form of the servant, he does not perform all the works of his omnipotence in, through, and with his human nature. He only performs some and only in the place where his human nature is located. Again, Jesus' body can only be in one place at one time. And while he can do everything else through his divine nature, he only does it when he's in the place where he is. All right, number 15. According to his human nature, he is not at all capable of almighty power and other attributes of the divine nature, which goes against Christ's clear declaration 
in Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And of St. Paul in Colossians 2, 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I mean, so you have to deal with Jesus's words in Matthew 28 and Paul's words in Colossians to try to say that Jesus can't be everywhere. Number 16, greater and more power is given to Christ according to his humanity than to all angels and other creatures. He has no communion with God's almighty power, but ha nor has this been given him. Therefore, they make up a middle power, a power between God's almighty power and the power of other creatures given to Christ according to his humanity by the exaltation. This would be less than God's almighty power and greater than that of other creatures. Again, this idea that Jesus is one of these heroes of mythology that are demigods, that are half God, half man. So they're not as great as gods, but they're also better than regular humans. This is the idea Arius had, that he's somewhere in the middle, a third thing. And no, that, that Jesus says is not true. Number 17, Christ, according to his human mind, has a certain limit as to how much he is to know. He knows only what is fitting and needful for him to know his office as judge. Number 18, Christ did not ha yet have a perfect knowledge of God and all his works. Yet it is written about him in Colossians 2.3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Number 19, it is impossible for Christ, according to his human mind, to know what has been from eternity, what at present is occurring everywhere, and what will be in eternity. So 17, 18, and 19 all talk about it cannot be that Jesus' human mind can fathom everything that goes on, that can fathom being God, that there are things that he does not know, that there are things he cannot know, and that he cannot retain everything. And again, this is that wanting to isolate the divine from the human. Finally, number 20, Matthew 28, 18. We've heard this verse over and over again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me is wrongly taught, as are other such verses. This passage is interpreted and blasphemously perverted to say that all power in heaven and on earth was restored, that is, delivered again to Christ according to the divine nature, at the resurrection and his ascension to heaven. This argues as though Christ had also, according to his divinity, laid this power aside and abandoned it in his state of humiliation. Not only the words of Christ's testament are perverted by this teaching, but also the way is prepared for the accursed Arian heresy. Ultimately, Christ's eternal deity is denied, and so Christ and with him our salvation are entirely lost if this false doctrine is not firmly opposed from the permanent foundation of the divine word and our simple Christian Catholic faith. All right, so this last one. That, yeah, they'll take all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Great. Well, we believe that. But that's because he, it's been restored to him. He laid it aside. This is, again, the idea that the Logos left Jesus when he was nailed to the cross. That it, is no, that it was only Jesus of Nazareth up there on the cross, not Jesus, the Son of God. And so now, after his resurrection, everything's been given back to him. No. No, he has always had it. Because if we have this idea that Jesus gave it away or Jesus lost it somewhere, then what's to say he won't lose it again? What's to say that, you know, because this is the foundation of our faith here. This is the foundation of our salvation. 
So if we let this go, we let this slide, then no. No, we have no assurance. We cannot sing how firm a foundation because we're standing on gravel. And that is never a good thing. You, you, don't, you don't do well standing on a gravel bridge looking over a cliff. You have nothing firm to hold on to. But what we do have, what is firm in the foundation of our faith and the foundation of our salvation is that from the moment of his conception by the Holy Spirit, Jesus has always been and will always be both God and man. He is both divine and human. And that is why his life, his death, his resurrection mean so much to us. This is why we wrestle with the theologies, because as we just saw in this one, you can take the scriptures and you can make it say something completely different and it changes everything. This is why this podcast exists, so that I can help you. And through this, I also am strengthened through the word to wrestle with the theologies around me to help you wrestle the theologies around you, knowing what is true and right, knowing what is truly the foundation of our faith. It's not you. It's not me. It is Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man, dead, buried, and raised again for the forgiveness of your sins. All right, this is Southern Dynamite thanking you for being here. Come back next week as we go into the Solid Declaration Article 8, expounding a little bit further on the person of Christ and the issues that come when we have that wrong. Amen.